Hey everybody, so welcome to week 47 on the Little Bit Out West podcast. This, this one this week is, it's kind of a culmination of a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And the title this week is, There Are No Formulas. One of the most frustrating things for me as a young Christian believer was in hearing testimonies of other people who were healed or prospered, blessed. They always tell their tale and their story gives me hope that, hey, that could happen to me too. And that part is okay because that's the purpose for the testimony. That's that's why we do it. But the next step is where I always miss it and I think most people do. And that's the part about, okay, so what do I do next? So you hear this story that this one person gave this big offering and they were blessed in return. and Or this other person, they were kind to people and so they had people be kind to them. Or somebody else, you know, they spoke nothing but the Bible for three days and so they got healed. Or they went to Reverend so-and-so's meeting and he put his hand on them, they fell down and they were healed. And so many of us think that the next step is, okay, then I need to do what they did. Wrong. Thomas Paine noticed something about religion that many of us miss, or we're afraid to admit it. He speaks about this issue in his heretical book, The Age of Reason, which is, as I said, it's it's a book that a lot of people, especially anti-religious people, point this book as being evidence against religion. They think that Thomas Paine was an atheist, which he wasn't. He points out in his book that scripture and testimony is hearsay evidence. He says that it's not proof of something, but it's an interpretation of evidence based on the best guess of the witness, and therefore it's not reliable. Without understanding why this is so, this has robbed many people of their faith, and they've turned their back on religion, believing that it's a lie and a fairy tale. Now, Thomas Paine assumes many things in his writing, and he's ignorant of some things, and so he makes a wonderful case based on the evidence he has, but he's incorrect because of some of the gaps in his understanding. And I would never even dream of disputing his writing in this short segment that we're talking about, but I do want to address this one small area of hearsay. One of the things that Paine is ignorant of is is that Christianity, regardless of what it was or has become, was never intended to be a faith based simply on the testimony of a few witnesses. It's not a religion. It's a real relationship with a real person. Without intending to hurt anyone's feelings, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but the truth is, is that if you don't have a real relationship with a real person, then you're not really a Christian. The word Christian means, literally, one in which the anointing of God dwells. The word Christ means the anointing, the Messiah. To me, this means that faith is not faith unless it's based on something solid and immovable, 
The word faith itself means to be firmly established, having a strong foundation. Faith is not a wish. It's not a hope. It is bedrock solid belief. If you do what you do or believe what you believe because someone else said it or did it, you're following a tradition. Well, so what? What does this mean to us? It means that each person and their will is tremendously important to God. It means there is no formula for success because each of us has to come to it through our relationship with God, finding his will in it. Frankly, it means everything. It means that to a small extent, what they say about truth being relative is in one way true. It means that God deals with you as an individual, and it means that you can't play the system. It means Satan can never succeed because nothing he does is ever from a relationship with God. The only formula that exists, or at least that I believe exists, is this. Obedience to the honestly perceived will of God is honored by God to the fullest extent that he is able to honor it, limited only by the restrictions we place in his path by our will and the truth. Now this provides for an infinite number of possibilities of outcomes because each of us is different and our understandings change and God chooses to work within that framework because he loves us. He values our free will because we are his friends. Don't, however, confuse that with do whatever you want and then justify your actions as part of God's will. That's not going to end well. And that's probably a subject for another time. So we'll tackle that later. I'm including a song this week from Journey Church Worship. This is an album that just recently came out. You can find them on Spotify. I'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes to their Spotify page and to their website. This is going to make the episode go a little longer, but I really love this song and I wanted you guys to hear it. So here we go. So move like a mind 
Your voice in that quiet place, secret place, your voice alone we want to hear. It's your love, your love in that quiet place, secret place, your love that keeps us drawing. To continue with this theme this week, and we're going to talk about how to stay between the ditches in the middle of the road. And of course, we've talked about this at other times during the year. Jesus spoke about the religious leaders of his day by saying that they were blind guides. And he said that if you follow them, they will lead you off the path and into a ditch. That's in Matthew 15, 14. So how do we keep from running off the road and falling into the spiritual ditches? We live in an age where we have many voices telling us what we should believe and who we should believe in. And the majority of us are just trying to live our lives the best way we know how. And so when someone challenges our beliefs, we don't really have a way to recognize whether it's dangerous or not because we're not educated in those areas. When a teaching comes along that sounds good, we have a tendency to place our faith in the person doing the teaching. And so we just assume that they won't lead us wrong. If we haven't asked ourselves some of these hard questions already, then we don't know how to respond when we hear something that seems a little shady. And some people will respond by rejecting everything that doesn't agree with what they already believe. And others reject everything they already believe because this person said it. But what if there was a way to find 
common denominators between those ideas? What if there's a way to see how every time one of these fads or heresies comes along, we can see what they have in common with the others? Everything that we're dealing with in the 21st century has already been discussed for thousands of years. But because life is what it is, we can't all be educated about all of these things. I mean, if you are having to make a living and raise your children, do you really have time to explore the writings of Aquinas and Aristotle? I believe that there are a few things that always rear their ugly heads whenever a teaching or a person comes along to lead people off into error. I'm going to show you how to be able to tell when something is wrong and dangerous, even without having to read through all the philosophy of the last 4,000 years. If you want a shortcut that's going to save you a great deal of grief, I think I can help. If you want to spend hours and hours discussing the finer points of Plato, chances are I won't be able to help. My research and my proof is taken from life and the Christian Bible, the King James Version. If there's something in here that's confusing or needs clarification, I would be more than happy to take that deep dive with you. It's my hope that I will be able to reduce these things down to a simple enough form that it won't be necessary, and these ideas will be self-evident for you. If not, you know how to get a hold of me, and you can explain how I'm wrong. So, the first thing we come across is the used car salesman. Everyone recognizes that feeling that you get when someone's trying to sell you something. No one likes that feeling, at least no one I know. No one likes to feel that they're being manipulated. When this guy, this used car salesman, is talking to you, you should never believe anything he says, even if it sounds true. Just walk away. The reality is that the car he's trying to sell you is never as good as he says it is, and there are other places you can buy cars. He wants you to believe you want and need this car, and that you could never find a better car anywhere else. And... You need it today. Unless you are sure that you have all the information and that you can see past the smoke screen, walk away. Eve fell for this guy in the garden when he told her that she needed that fruit to make her wise. What she failed to see was that desperation and need are never good motivation for anything. Oh sure, some good things have come from that kind of mentality, but the cost is always more than the gain. She also failed to see that she already possessed everything she needed to make her wise. What she thought she was buying was something she already owned. In Jesus' life, there was never a time when he acted as though the end justified the means or where he felt rushed or panicked. When Lazarus was sick, Jesus was about three-quarters of a mile away. And yet Jesus waited two days before going to see him. That's John 11. Someone might say, well, it's different for Jesus because he could raise Lazarus from the dead. But the reality is that if that had been you or me, the only reason we would hurry over there would be to say goodbye, which with eternal perspective is not really that big of a deal. Jesus slept in the middle of the storm. He didn't wake up until his disciples thought they were all going to die. And then they shook him awake and said, Don't you care? That's in Mark chapter 4. Faith rests 
but fear is always in a hurry. Feeling hurried or under pressure is a sure sign that something is not from God. Push back against the pressure. Steal its power. That salesman has no power against calm. Get away from the panic and make your decision on your own schedule. The first principle of a good lie is to dazzle them with your footwork. What this means is that in order for the liar to get you to do what they want you to do, they will attempt to confuse you with a lot of different buts and what ifs until you eventually just give in because it's just all too complicated. That saying about footwork comes from boxers, fighters who move their feet quickly in order to hide the stance that they're about to take. If you're going to hit someone on the side of their head, your feet need to be in a certain position to put the power into that punch. And if you move your feet around, your opponent isn't sure what you're going to do, and so they can't prepare for it. In the exact same way, religious scholars and philosophers can dazzle you with convoluted and confusing ideas that contradict and lead nowhere. This idea comes up most often in areas of religious obligation. The Pharisees were famous in the Bible times for having super convoluted and strict rules about being religious. There still exist many of these same ideas and traditions in a lot of different areas. Jesus responded to this in Scripture when he said in Matthew 15 that the religious leaders had made the things of God of none effect through their traditions. By coming up with all of their own rules, they had actually made God's rule useless and powerless to do any good in their lives. So the second principle of a good lie is to take something with context and nuance and then reduce it down to a trite saying or idea. And you can see this with certain sayings. One example, money is the root of all evil. While this seems to make sense and it sounds sort of like scripture, it's far more complicated than just that simple saying. It's not overly complicated and yet it's not quite that simple either. 1 Timothy 6. The third principle of a good lie is to make everything okay, because after all, what you want is more important than what you need. At a certain point, the lie becomes that there is no real point of truth or reality, only what you want. Everything else is less important than your own selfish desires. This is the idea that there are no consequences to our actions and there is no point in seeking for anything absolute. And this is almost always an excuse to do all of the things you're not supposed to do. The fourth principle of a good lie is to maintain that there is no rule maker. And since there are no rules, then it follows that there never was someone who made up the rules. In order to do this, we make God into a what instead of being a who. If there is no president, but just the government, then there's no one to turn to in times of trouble. Everywhere you go to get an answer to your problem just gives you the runaround and sends you to a different bureaucrat who doesn't actually care about you. And this is basically what happens when God stops being a personal, knowable God and he becomes some sort of unknowable force or power or feeling. Once we've reduced God into some impersonal and barely defined thing, then we can focus on something else to be our God. And this usually takes the form of a guru 
or a teacher who becomes overly controlling and demanding. When all of the attention is on the guy on stage rather than on God, a God who is a personal being with mercy and justice in equal proportion, then you can know that you are slipping off into a cult. The other side of this coin is when the guru or the teacher sets himself up as the only one who actually knows what God thinks. He admits, yes, okay, there is a God. But then he says, I'm the only one who can talk to him, and I'm the only one who knows what he thinks. The final slippery slope leading into the ditch is that Jesus was just a good teacher and his death was a tragedy and an unnecessary murder. The point is usually that Jesus was a nice guy, but he wasn't really any different than anybody else, and he probably isn't as wonderful as the guy or guru we've got right now. While most people are unclear on the details about the need for a Savior, when Jesus is removed from the picture, they always run straight into the arms of someone or something else to take his place. Here's the problem. No one else is qualified to be our Savior. There is only one person who is perfect and only one who meets all the requirements of a Savior. Anyone or anything else is a poser. And they will usually even admit that to some extent. All of the things that Jesus does and the things he requires have counterfeits that can be made. Jesus wants to be our shepherd leading and teaching us. He wants to be our protector. We want those things too, but then... Jesus requires obedience and relationship as well. Since a guru or a teacher is standing in front of us, a lot of times it just seems easier to put the focus on them instead of on someone like Jesus who we can't see. So, to sum all of this up, the real problem here is that we've been blinded and we can't see what is right in front of our eyes. God exists Jesus exists, but we miss it because we see a difference in the evidence. Though it's illogical and preposterous to believe that our planet came into being by random chance, it's just easier to believe that than it is to believe that there's a person who's behind all of this and who is behind every process and form. Now, this is because of indoctrination, because of overcomplicated doctrines about rocks becoming people, using unknown quantities of time, millions and billions of years, and a process to disguise the beauty that you can find in every created blade of grass. And then there's the oversimplification of trying to say that all those creations are not created, but rather they are all beings who have taken different forms by random chance, or else they created themselves because they, are, they have this inherent godness. And now that everything is God, God becomes the force or the universe, and then we get shuffled along to each new spiritual bureaucrat along our journey towards enlightenment. Since that is lonely and unfulfilling, we find ourselves back where we started, searching for the enlightened one who will guide us into nirvana. And so we go in this never-ending circle, eventually dissatisfied, disappointed, and empty. Thanks for being with me this week. You guys are awesome. As always, you know how to get a hold of me if I said anything that offended your sensibilities and would love to talk with you. So take it easy. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.